In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We have a super exciting episode for you tonight. So our it's a little bit uh, midterm heavy. Um, our first two segments will both both be focused on the midterms. Um, first, we'll talk about kind of the background political landscape and the uh, context that will you know lay the background for our midterm predictions, which we will get to in our second segment, where we're going to talk about our specific breakdown of uh, the House and the Senate. And then finally, in our third segment, we're going to be talking about the separation of church and state, uh, how important that is, and a bit of a historical uh, perspective on on that separation. This this feels this again feels like we're returning to our roots. Yes, and finally, we can just nerd out because a lot of <laughs> a lot of yeah a lot of this episode is just going to be us nerding out. I am so excited to break down. The midterm election there's definitely a lot to talk about mm-hmm. some kind of bleak outlooks but some potential hope mm-hmm. but uh we'll see we'll see you know what i'm also hoping that there will be some hope in mm-hmm. the covid yeah. numbers so Me are too. there are there hope in the is there hope in the covid numbers well let's see so worldwide we've hit 570 million cases with an average daily new case rate over the last seven days of 882,000. Now that's up about 1.8%, right? Almost 2% from 866,000 the week before. Um, So in terms of death, we've hit 6.39 million deaths worldwide with an average daily new death rate of 1,589, which is up about 2% from 1,558 the week before. So both cases and deaths worldwide up about 2% uh, on you know, average daily cases over the last week. Um, in terms of vaccination, we've hit 66.8% with at least one dose, which is up just a tenth of a percent from 66.7% last week. In the U.S., we've hit 91.6 million cases with an average daily new case rate over the last seven days of 96,000, which is actually down 19% from 118,000 the week before. In terms of death, we've hit 1.049 million deaths with an average daily death rate over the last seven days of 250, which is down about 20% from 315 uh, the week before. Um, And in terms of vaccination uh, across those with one dose and those with two doses, we're up just uh, a tenth of a percent across, across each of those. So the world's getting a little bit worse in terms of cases and deaths. Uh, the U.S. is getting significantly better, um, and vaccination rates are pretty much stagnant. Hmm. So, so not a lot of hope. Not a lot of hope. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like at the same time, in the face of you know a new subvariant, relatively new subvariant uh, that seems to be more transmissible, cases in the U.S. are still, at least this week, have still gone down. Um, so that is encouraging. Yeah, yeah. You know what is partially encouraging <laughs> in some ways what what is that the midterm election certainly compared to like three months ago yeah or like the end definitely of compared to three months ago so 
to start out, let's talk about the context of the midterms. So yeah. as you probably know, historically, the party that is in the White House does not do well in the first midterm election. Yep. And so far that trend has carried us through several of the last midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, there's definitely some things to consider on both sides of whether or not history will repeat itself and whether or not things might be different this time around. First off, on the side of history repeating itself. So first off, we have the fact that Joe Biden is historically unpopular right now. And yeah. I'm talking like less popular than Trump was at this time in his presidency. So looking at just the real clear politics um, polls from just today, which is Wednesday, July 20th, there are several approval polls. On the low end is 33% approval and 59% disapproval. That's Quinnipiac. The high end... 40% approval and 54% disapproval from an Economist YouGov poll. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of them are between those two numbers. So most of them are in the 30s. Some of them are in the low 30s. Most of them are in the mid 30s. Things are not looking good for Joe Biden. Yeah. To put it in a little bit of perspective, like when Trump left office, like... After he tried to overthrow the government, his approval rating was 34. So just under Biden's yeah. currently. Yeah. Having not tried to overthrow the government. <laughs> <laughs> and there are lots of reasons for that. You know, the biggest reason for that is inflation. Now, yeah. you can definitely argue that a lot of the ways in which Republicans have been trying to tie inflation down on Joe Biden specifically mm -hmm. saying, well, it's because he's been hostile towards the fossil fuel industry. That's bullshit. It's because he's been hostile towards Saudi Arabia. Maybe some truth to it, but the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is also <laughs> a genocidal maniac who, yeah. by the way, Joe Biden recently fist pumped. So I guess we're, we're fist pumping autocratic genocidal tyrants right now. But anyway. But it's for oil, Nathan. But it's for oil. So, <laughs> you know, things that are slowly destroying our planet. So that's great. Blaming the American Rescue Plan, which mm -hmm. is also bullshit. Yeah. The main causes of inflation right now are supply chains brought upon by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which has uh, which resulted in the sanctions on Russia, which disrupted the global supply of oil. The mm -hmm. entire the entire world is now facing inflation. It's not just the United States, which means pinning it on Biden is not completely fair. Even if there was a contribution of, you know, a, uh, you know, support for the economy leading to some inflation like down the road to Nathan's point, it's not all that. And the point that I am continue continuing to be totally willing to make is that that's worth it. Yeah. Like people didn't starve in a time when we were people were at serious risk of starving. Yeah. Like that's worth it. Yeah. So all of that being said, people are still blaming Biden. Sure. And honestly, I think it's fair to criticize him for not doing enough to address it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, and like and at the very least, like not making it clear, like what he's doing to address it. Like you have yeah. to have like really 
great communication about this kind of crisis if you're going to weather it. Yeah. But regardless of that, the person who is the president, fair or yeah. not fair, is always blamed for the current economy. That's just mm -hmm. that's just how it works. Sure. Which means that their party are going to be blamed for it. Yeah. And as it stands, and again, going into the... Um, Going down on the side of history might repeat itself. As it stands, according to Statistica, 26% uh, of Americans currently view the economy as being the most important political issue for the midterm election. Yeah. And that's compared to 19% in the 2018 hmm. election. So that's an important number to think about. And yeah. again, I would say that in reality, the Republicans are much more um, irresponsible with the economy. Yeah. But right now, the Democrats are in power, and the economy's not doing so well. So yeah. Democrats are going to get blamed, which means they're going to suffer in the midterms. Yeah. I'd say, like, I, I think that's a great summary. Ultimately, like, between it being a midterm with, Democratic, with Democrats in power, a relatively unsuccessful first couple years— at least relative to many of the promises and a lot of the hope that was coming from putting Biden in place of Trump, like not the most successful first couple of years in office, like by all rights, it seems like Republicans should like win by a blowout. Yeah. Except, but, but then comes <laughs> abortion. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which could be the Democrats one saving grace in all of this. Now, yeah. I just want to make one thing completely clear. It is not a good thing. The fact that Roe versus yeah. Wade was overturned was not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And anybody that says, well, this is good for Democrats, which means it's good for the country. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Roe got overturned because it's going to help Democrats. That is a terrible way of looking at it because yeah. again, the point of politics is policy the point of policy is to help people. The idea that people being hurt in order to put a party in power is a good thing is fundamentally just fucked up. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So any activist that has any inkling of saying that, any, any like, remotely, remote implication of that. So, so, so I just, I just want to make that clear. But that being said... Right now, I'm I'm trying to talk about the data as it impacts the in, the midterms, and right now, if we are analyzing it from a cold and calculated perspective, the abortion decision does appear to be helping Democrats. Mm -hmm. So yeah. first off, we have the fact that in terms of issues that are top issues for voters, according to Statista, the second most important issue was abortion at 25%, only 1% lower than the economy, which is up from 9% wow. in 2018. That's remarkable. And remember, oh the Democrats won in 2018. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so it, clearly, abortion has become a massively important issue. Also yeah. looking at polling from Gallup related to how that has shifted people's people's views directly and how that will impact people's views. Um, 54% of Americans say that abortion will be one of many important factors. 27% say that the person 
who is running, who, who is running in the midterms must share their views on abortion. Hmm. That's interesting. 27% say that they must share their views on abortion. Wow. Right? That is, that is actually really interesting because especially because, so I imagine that 27% is not just like newly minted pro-choice advocates. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I imagine that's like, like a, a large group of that is like Republicans who have abortion as their main issue. And it's also just really in the spotlight right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me about that is, is how unpopular like harsh restrictions on abortion are. So you're basically like 27% of people are forcing candidates to share their views about abortion. Many of whom are like pretty hard line on it, but moderates don't like hard line positions on abortion. It's unpopular yeah. to be starkly anti-abortion. So that like might end up working in our favor, especially looking at like following the Hobbes decision um, on the 24th. So at the time uh, on the generic ballot, which is basically a question asking uh, voters whether they lean Republican or, or, or whether they would support Republican or Democrats in the upcoming election. On the 24th, um, before the Hobbs decision was released, Democrats were trailing Republicans by 2.3%. After the Dobbs decision, and this is according to 538, Democrats were trailing Republicans by just 1.6%. And in a midterm year when Democrats are in power, 1.6% is not that bad of a popular margin and a yeah. lot of points to make up following like 2.3% to 1.6 is like a pretty big improvement with just like a, f a couple of polls that have actually been produced since the Dobbs decision. Yeah. Now let's also look a little bit more in depth into those numbers because I think it is important to note that that is an increase the, the, the statistic that I gave, the 27%, that is an increase from 2020, but it's an increase from 24%. Mm -hmm. However, here's where that number becomes a lot more important when it comes to dictating what it truly means. So let's look at the people that say that who are pro-choice voters versus pro-life voters. Because remember, mm -hmm. that, that statistic is just about whether they must share your opinion. Oh, so yes. you're about to go into the real facts behind the intuition that I was sharing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So the real yeah. facts behind that intuition. So among pro-choice voters, 17% of them, 17% say that the, the person who is elected or the person that they're voting for must share their views on abortion versus 10% of people that are pro-life. And compare that to the 2020 numbers, it was 10% for pro-choice voters and 13% for pro-life voters, which means for pro-life voters, it has gone down by 3%, which again would indicate that for people that are pro-choice, abortion has become a much more central issue, Yeah, which means that the party that favors abortion is more likely to get a bump from that. Mm -hmm. So that's important context. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's totally true. I think it's also interesting to set that in a little bit of like, uh, the larger context of like all the Supreme court rulings and stuff. Cause like, 
you know, the party, the, the Republicans are out of power. And typically the party out of power gains seats in the midterms, as we've said again and again. But it's interesting that they, that they've had these like strange, like almost legislative wins, even though they're out of power. Yeah. So, and, and their, and their legislative accomplishments via, you know, the judiciary that are, you know, upsetting to the status quo pretty significantly in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so like, if you hypothesize that one of the reasons why the party in power loses seats during the midterms, if you hypothesize that one of the drivers is people just being moderate and not wanting big changes, then it actually might work towards the Democrats favor that Republicans have made a bunch of big changes via the judiciary. So it might actually temper some of that midterm backlash. Yeah. The other thing is that like, the other thing is that like the focus of these decisions on like really controversial, uh, like divisive issues, you know, abortion, separation of church and state guns. I think that's like taken the focus off of cultural issues that Democrats lose. Like the ones that Glenn Youngkin ran on and won in, 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 Virginia uh, in the gubernatorial race in 2021. So yeah. they've taken questions off like, you know, police and CRT in schools and yeah. all of all of those cultural issues and focus them on cultural issues where the Democrats are with the vast majority of the populace in terms of their like their actual belief, at least certainly on abortion and separation of church and state. Yeah. But then on the other side of it, again, back to the potential you know potential evidence of history repeating itself uh redistricting which at first seemed like it was going to be kind to the democrats is looking like it's going to be significantly less kind to them mm. so first off you have the fact that the uh, new york court of appeals you should recently tossed out a redistricting plan by the state's democratic controlled legislature which i mean it was partisanly gerrymandered so good yeah maryland recently <laughs> did the same yeah which again partisan gerrymandering yep you know it should it's be bad. thrown out yep um but then in florida um the uh the republicans who were in power drew a, redi- a redistricting map that was slightly biased towards the republicans so naturally, Ron DeSantis vetoed it because it wasn't <laughs> gerrymandered enough, and he's an authoritarian fascist. And they abandoned that plan, which again was less gerrymandered. It was still gerrymandered, but it was less gerrymandered for another one that is projected to give Florida Republicans four more seats in the House than they had <laughs> on the old map. Jeez. And based on 538 projections, the ones that are the the seats that are looking like they're going to go Democrat are there's about eight of them mm-hmm. versus uh, nineteen Jesus. that look like they're going to go Republican, which is seventy percent of the state's delegation. Which I would remind you, Trump won Florida by fifty one percent. He got fifty one percent of the vote in Florida. And yet it's looking like Republicans are going to control 70% of the delegation for the House of Representatives. Yep. 
So fuck gerrymandering. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I don't want gerrymandering from Democrats or Republicans, but right now it's looking like the Democrat, the Democratic states are doing more to fight against gerrymandering within their yeah. own states, and Republicans are straight up vetoing. Yeah. Like slightly Not, less gerrymandered maps. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Like, I agree. I'm a, I'm against gerrymandering. I think there's only one solution to gerrymandering and that has to be a national solution Yeah, because absolutely. the party that gerrymanders will win and prevent there from being a solution. Yeah. Just, you know, that's just how the, the math works at the same time. However, <laughs> Republicans are fielding some candidates that are just so shitty that yeah. they're like victims of their own success. Right. Yeah. They just are fielding can certain candidates that are just, so outside of like being in line with the populace that they're like losing the advantage that they should have. For example, in Pennsylvania, the, which is like, you know, a purple state in a Republican leaning year, you'd expect it to be like solidly red. Um, but they nominated Dr. Fucking Oz <laughs> <laughs> for their Senate seat. And so far he's losing in every poll against the democratic candidate. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so like, and that's just one example, but like, I guess, I guess the, the large point here is, you know, we'll talk through some of the specifics around the Senate and the house. Um, there's structural problems that make it like problematic to keep the house. Um, there's just, it's just the way it's going to turn out this year. But like the Republicans are doing everything they can to help us out except for gerrymandering. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, the last, the last thing before I get to specifics with the, the House is I want to talk about the generic ballot. The generic ballot is basically a national survey in which they ask who should control Congress, Republicans or Democrats. And the generic ballot for the past several months has been favoring Republicans pretty consistently, but there has been a little bit of a shift. All right. So... If you look at the real clear politics average, um, currently it's Democrats with 43.0% and Republicans with 44.5%. But keep in mind, that's an average and it doesn't necessarily take into account um, shifts that happen like from one week to another, which means that mm. maybe a poll from last week gets counted into it, but something might have shifted. There are three generic ballots polls from Wednesday, July 20th. And there's an Economist YouGov poll that has Democrats up by three, a Quinnipiac poll that has Democrats up by one, mm. and a uh, Politico Morning Consult, consult poll uh, that shows Democrats up by four. Wow. So and those are recent? Those are today. Those are ones oh, that wow. were released just today. That's encouraging. Yeah. So that is definitely encouraging. So that I would say is all the major available data that I think can guide our overall analysis of what the midterms are going to look like. And now for a more lighthearted segment. Good actually. So Nathan. What the heck is Good Actually? Well, Good Actually is a segment that we do because the world sucks. 
Yeah, it does. It can just be really, really bad sometimes. Really, really, really bad. And as people that follow politics, it can be really bad. Even worse, yes. And as people who follow politics and are on the left, it can be fucking abysmal. Really bad. Terrible. Horrifying. But sometimes, if you look very closely Mm. at the world, you realize, hey, there are some good things around me. And the more you look, the more you realize that good actually is all around us. So, Michael, what is our good actually this week? This week, our good actually is that some of our favorite Congress people got arrested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, specifically, um, there were a group of people demonstrating outside of the Supreme Court in favor of reproductive rights. Um, and that group included uh, a bunch of Congress people. And in total, uh, these, you know, 34 people were arrested for peaceably chanting and organizing outside of the Supreme Court. And 16 of those were members of Congress. And so I know it's weird to be like, yay, our people got arrested. But like what's, in, what's encouraging about that is that our first episode on this show was about strategy versus principle. And if I remember correctly, all that long time ago, we came down pretty squarely on the side of both should is are important. Ultimately, you have to have principles in order yeah. to be like in like in any good position to rule. Yeah. And it's really cool to see a group of people walk the walk, not yeah. just talk the talk. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely use that shit in future campaigns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now we go back to strategy. <laughs> and <laughs> but, so but also but also yeah, like at once you reach the point where you're willing to be arrested by by someone for civil disobedience, that's when we're starting to get more into the territory of you clearly do care about this issue. It's not just a farce. It's not just about gaining political power. It's you want to make sure that this shit gets solved. Yeah. Yeah, and so we just wanted to call out um, our appreciation for the 16 members of Congress uh, that were arrested. Uh, so thank you to Assistant Speaker Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, Diana Presley of Massachusetts, Barbara Lee of California, Jackie Spear of California, Sari Jacobs of California, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, Andy Levin of Michigan, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, Corey Bush of Missouri, Carolyn Maloney of New York, Nida Velasquez of New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, and Alma Adams of North Carolina. I recognize some of those names. Mm, there's some, <laughs> they have something in common. <laughs> They've been on our show before. <laughs> so that's good, actually. So let's start with the house. As it stands, the 538 forecast says that there is a 86 in 100 chance that Republicans win and a 14 in 100 chance that Democrats win. Pretty encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, we're losing the house. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> but 538 has not always been correct. And But are they correct? 36% are they 36% wrong <laughs> so keep in mind that whole 86% wrong 
a large amount of those projections are still based on data from before the um, the overturn of Roe versus sure. Wade. Yeah, absolutely. So that's important context to think about. All right. Yeah. Um, also, it is important to note that I, again, I'm not going to say that it's not scientific, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that those numbers are good for Democrats, and I'm not going to say that we should just ignore that, those numbers. Yeah. But I think it is still important to note that um, oftentimes that analysis, the models that they create, are based more off of the last election than on this election. And things have changed back and forth several times throughout like throughout the course of the last eight years mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways trumpism has blown up the formula in so many ways yeah i'd say that's right i think like in this so for for the 538 model like i know they recently started to incorporate the generic ballot uh just directly into the model as one of the factors so like um and but the other thing they do is I think they weight more recent polls like higher, yeah. but they still incorporate older polls as well. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I totally agree that like, you know, modeling is an art in addition to a science. But like, I don't know, to me, it seems like I, I get I get your point. Like, it doesn't mean the ship is sunk necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think like in if 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 we were predicting something. I'm pretty sure the Republicans are going to control the house, you yeah. know, like, so, so according to the 538, yeah. Like, so Democrats are solidly or likely going to win 180 seats. They lean towards winning 16 and 12 more are toss up. Right. Yeah. So even if they're wrong about the toss up ones, right. If, even if all of those go towards Democrat and they're right about all the leanings and the 180 solid uh, seats, right? Cause, cause being wrong can go both ways. Even if, even if all those go towards Democrat, that's 208, that's 208 seats. So not enough to control the house. They need to pick up another 10 of the 15 Republican leaning seats, uh, in the middle, in like the midterm year with an unpopular president, just yeah. to be able to have one seat advantage in the house. Yeah. Yeah. So, that is that is also important context. Um, and another piece of important context I would say that we need to think about is that this is the race as it is right now. Sure. Things can still change. It, so it's I, early. So yeah. I think that I think that what you should take from this in terms of the House election is that if the election were held today, the mm -hmm. Republicans would almost certainly win. Yeah. Like um I I'm pretty comfortable saying that. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty comfortable saying at this point predicting that, uh, that that I would predict that the Republicans do take the House, but that there is a possibility of Democrats, if they are smart, which they're probably not going to be, but if they're smart, potentially salvaging this. All right. And the way that you do that, the way that you salvage this is take advantage of the places where you're popular. So the abortion debate and excommunicate every single person that stands in the way. So mm. right now, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are standing in the way. Ignore what Republicans have to say and focus on them. 
All right. Focus yeah. on basically saying this is an election not against the Republican Party, but against Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin so that we can pass Roe versus Wade into law mm. so that we can enshrine Roe versus Wade into law. And the only way that that happens is if we keep our majority in the House and net two seats in the Senate. That is the yeah. only way that happens. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I mean, that's the, that's their only saving grace at this point. Yeah. That's their Hail so, Mary. Yeah. So like a common counter argument to that would be like, well, if we, are we just going to give two seats to Republicans then, which means we have to make up even more except no, because this is actually the perfect time to focus on saying we need more seats in order to overcome like the Democrats that aren't progressive enough because cinema and mansion are not up for re-election yes. this year. There, there's no risk yeah. in this particular election, and a lot's going to change before 2024. There's no risk in this particular election to being like, these people are not what Democrats stand for. We stand for abortion rights. We stand for an independent judiciary. We stand for being against climate change. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's we another stand for the Build Back Better plan, like yeah. all of these things, and we have to overcome mansion and cinema to do it yeah and that's the other thing i would say abortion i think is going to be the biggest hail mary but you cannot also you cannot ignore some of the other economic issues so yeah. here's here's oh, yeah. what i would say though you should run on build back better but instead of making the primary focus of your campaign those words build back better focus on some of the popular provisions within them yeah, because I mean, it's kind of like how people more people were against Obamacare than the Affordable Care Act, even though they're the same damn thing. It's all about yeah. marketing. So yeah. if you say build back better, people are going to think, oh, well, that's Biden. I don't like Biden. But if you say mm -hmm. universal pre-K, it's like, oh, wait, I actually love that. That sounds great. So yeah. run on those specific provisions within Build Back Better. Like, you don't have to not mention Build Back Better, but focus on the provisions that are in Build Back Better. Talk about how, you know, again, with, within the excommunication of, of uh, Mansion and Cinema, they're the ones standing in the way of this. And the only way that you can really have those things is if you, is if you allow us to keep the House and mm -hmm. also um, net two seats in the Senate. Yeah. So that brings us to the Senate which mm -hmm. is a lot brighter in terms of prospects for the Democratic Party. Yeah. So let's go through each of the seats. I'm going to gloss over several of them where I'm just going to kind mm -hmm. of say, like, this seat is going to Republicans or this seat is going to Democrats um, because they're just not competitive seats. Yeah. Okay. One thing to call out right at the outset is, like, obviously everybody knows we're in a 50-50 Senate right now. 21 Republican seats are up in this election and 14 democratic seats. Yeah. So like just those numbers, if we were to just replicate what we had before would be a big win. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's go through it. All right. First off we have, um, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go through it based on the, the map that I have in front of me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Washington is up for reelection going to the Democrat, Oregon yep. going to the Democrat, California going to the Democrat, Alaska, going to the Republican, Hawaii, going to the Democrat, um, Idaho, going to the Republican, Utah, going to the Republican, uh, North Dakota, going to the Republican, 
South Dakota, going to the Republican. Um, Iowa, as much as I wish that we could unseat Grassley in the state <laughs> I used to reside in, going to Grassley, going to the Republican. Kansas, going to the Republican. Uh, both of Oklahoma seat, uh, of Oklahoma's seats are up for, um, for re-election because I think, I think there's a special election, um, but both of those are going to the Republican. Um, Michigan, Republican. Arkansas, Republican. Louisiana, Republican. Alabama, Republican. South Carolina, Republican. Uh, Kentucky, Republican. Indiana, Republican. Illinois, Democrat. Maryland, Democrat. New York, Democrat. New Hampshire, sometimes competitive. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes <laughs> competitive, but yeah. looking at the polling data, honestly, it's it's going to the Democrat. Uh, mm -hmm. Vermont, definitely going to the Democrat. Um, and uh, uh, Connecticut, going to the Democrat. So those are the now ones we get that onto are the all seats safe. that matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of these, some of these, some of the ones that I skipped over, I like. I, I don't have much to say about them, but I just yeah. want to very briefly. So Colorado, sometimes mm. been a little bit more of a purple state. It's been yeah. trending blue. I think it's safe to give that to the Democrat. Um, Florida. I mean, Democrats. I know that you want to. I I, I know that Florida done you wrong during the Gore election. Mm -hmm. And I mean, well, Florida didn't. It was it was the government that did. And since then, you've been trying to recapture it. Um, you you won it twice under Obama. That was great. I, I think that there is activism to be had in Florida. Sure. But Rubio is not going anywhere. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, I think we just, yeah, there might be like an opportunity in the future, but it's not like ripe. Yeah. I mean, look at everything that's happening in Florida as a state. Like Republicans control everything. Yeah. Like why would we think that they would flip that as it moves up the chain to the Senate? Yeah. And just looking at the polling, like Rubio is ahead in every single one, mm -hmm. some by double digits. Yeah. Like it's tightened slightly, but not by much. I think mm -hmm. I think it's safe to go ahead and give that to the Republicans. Um, yeah. And they've already done all the terrible things. You know, like it's not like we're going to have a situation yeah. where like, oh, shit, like abortion. What a surprise. They were already were like moving towards a 15 week abortion ban. Like they already do all the shitty shit. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's talk about North Carolina for a second. Mm. All right. So North Carolina, um, definitely more of a Republican state that's been trending a little bit more purple. Yeah. Um, as it stands, there's a Republican incumbent and there have been, there's like one poll in early June that had the Democrat ahead. Most of them have the Republican up and the 538 average is uh 45.3% to 43.6%. So competitive, but if I were a betting man, I would say North Carolina goes to the Republican. Yeah. And that's been true historically for a while. Like they've just been doing very well in North Carolina. Yeah. Um Nevada, let's talk about Nevada for a second. Mm. So I have that down as going Republican. Really? You have that down yes. as going Republican. I do. Do do tell. So, I mean, th so as I think about it, it's mostly about like the trend of Nevada over time. So, um, you know, Nevada, I think used to be like a much more purple 
sometimes even reliably blue area. Um, but it like has been, I think moving towards the right. Um, especially like they're particularly unhappy with a lot of like the COVID provisions and including stuff that Biden has advocated for because it hit their tourism industry really hard. You've got like large, uh, demographic shifts towards Hispanic and like Asian voters that have been breaking like and moving towards the right a little bit. Um, I'm just kind of like not hopeful about Nevada pretty much at all. So Nevada has the, in the Nevada, the Democrat has incumbency has the, the, the incumbency advantage. Um, it is a state that has gone blue in most elections, most of the last few elections. Let's see it. It went blue under Biden in 2018 it went blue for the senate there was a there was a seat that shifted um the polls are tighter than i'd like them to be like the average shows the democrat only up by 0.8 percent um but a lot of the more recent polls so the most recent poll which was an emerson college um that was done through july 7th to 10th had the Democrat up by three points. I think it's going to be close. Yeah. I think it goes to the Democrat, though. That would be awesome. I think Nevada goes to the Democrat. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and I, I actually, that's one of the few on my map that I haven't filled out yet. So I'm going to go ahead and fill that out for the Democrat. Cool. Arizona. So Arizona is one that has been trending bluer and bluer. Mm-hmm. And the current Democrat who is the senator there is uh, uh, Mark Kelly. Yeah, you got Mark fucking Kelly <laughs> as the incumbent. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and I'm just I'm looking at the I'm looking at the polling data right now. And Kelly is winning every single one of them, sometimes in double digits. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a popular candidate. Yeah. Fucking former astronaut. Yeah. Like. And not super hardcore. He's like very well matched, I think, to the and dem- he has the power like of the politics of the state, and he has the incumbency. Yeah. So I think Arizona goes to the Democrat. Um. Let's talk about Georgia. Oh man, Georgia's Georgia. Tough. Georgia's very tough. Of all of the predictions that I make, I'm going to go ahead and say that Georgia is the one that I'm most likely to be wrong about. Hmm. Um. And it's difficult because yeah. if you had asked me last week, I would have said, I would have pretty quickly said Republican. Mm. Um, but at the same time, like I'm looking, I'm looking at polling data and there's something, there's something that I noticed, which I think is really interesting. So as it stands, Warnock is winning in most of the polls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he has a uh, 1.3% advantage in the average polling from 538. Okay, yeah. But also, I don't think that those are just flukes because when I look at poll at, at those polls compared to polls for the governor's race, mm-hmm. the same polls find that Kemp wins by quite a bit, hmm. but Warnock still wins. That's really interesting. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the same specific pollster. 
yeah, that yeah. conducted it for the same people, which means that there is a there is a pretty big portion of Georgia Republicans mm -hmm. or at least Georgia people that are voting for Kemp, but also voting for Warnock. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I actually and the polls showing um, a pretty close race, but with Warnock slightly ahead the last time ended up being pretty accurate. Yeah. So hmm. I'm going to go ahead and give Georgia to the Democrats. I also have Georgia down for the Democrats. I think like there was a lot of movement, a lot of progress for Democrats in Georgia over the last few years. Tons of organizing by Stacey Abrams yeah. like and and Democrats in the state. Like and Warnock himself like has not been has not like stopped his focus on campaigning in Georgia since you know he was elected. Like I I think that kind of the same potentially like the same waves that that turn that blue for 2020 could do the same thing in 2021 partially because like the uh, Republican candidate is such a buffoon yeah. and it seems pretty clear that like Georgians are kind of tired of buffoonery in yeah. their in their uh, in their elected representatives yeah. so yeah. um yeah, I, I kind of I have it going towards Democrat as well, which yeah. is again, who knows? We will see. Yeah. So that brings us to Wisconsin. Wisconsin is also very interesting. Yeah. Um, I would say that. Um, so Wisconsin is still fairly up in the air at this point, mm -hmm. mostly because they haven't had their primary yet. Mm. So the real campaign season has not started yet, and when you looked at look at head to head mashups, I'm. Um, in some of them, uh, Johnson, the uh, the current the, the current senator, uh, one of our favorites, uh, Ron Johnson, mm. one of our favorite asshats. Uh, <laughs> some of them he's winning, some of them he's losing. I think that at the end of the day, the power of incumbency, with the fact that oftentimes the only way the Democrat wins Wisconsin is if the polls show them ahead by quite a bit. Interesting. I'm going to give Wisconsin to the Republican. I'm going to give it to Ron Johnson. I hate to say that, but I think, I think Wisconsin goes to the Republican. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Cause like when I think of Wisconsin most recently, especially in reaction to like the Dobbs decision, I feel like it's one of the States that was most screwed over by the Dobbs decision. Yeah. Because they have this like old abortion law on the books now. And that like is just going to go into or has just gone back into effect. And like, I know if I were in Wisconsin, this is totally anecdotal. I'd be pretty frustrated by the fact that like now we're, now we have an abortion law. Maybe it doesn't align that well with the, the populace, but we have a Republican um, legislature, a democratic uh, governor, and we have no ability to make a decision one way or the other. So I think yeah. like Dobbs might figure largely in, in some of the shifts there, but at the same time, yeah. yeah, at the same time, like to your point, uh, if we're, if they're, you know, if once the primary is settled and the polling happens, if, if the Democrats aren't like significantly leading, there's no sense. There's no reason to think they would make it up. Yeah. So that, I would say that prediction is subject to change, but at this point yeah. I just, I think that Wisconsin goes, goes red. Mm -hmm. That brings us to Ohio, which this is one that before I started really looking at the race, I would have mm. said squarely 
in the red category. Yeah, that's like, what I would think. Very squarely in the red category. But then something caught my eye, which is the fact that um, Tim Ryan, who is the Democratic candidate, is actually doing extremely well in the polls. Hmm. Like That's really interesting. And so so 538 actually has him up by an average of 2%. Wow. Yeah. Now, who's, who's the Republican? Is it another buffoon? Are they J- oh, yeah. J- J.D. Vance, total buffoon. Total, oh, there total buffoon. <laughs> uniquely, uniquely. Maybe this is another Pennsylvania situation. Yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, uh, here's, here's what Tim Ryan is doing that makes me think that he, that, that, that I think partially explains this. First off, you might recognize that name. Um, as the uh, the idiot that mistook the Taliban for the um, for Al Qaeda in one of the mm. Democratic presidential debates, um, <laughs> you might also remember him as the guy that said you don't need to shout Bernie, and then tried to use that as his like campaign slogan, which Ooh, was a colossal failure. Wow, that is some bad work. But it sounds like he's been a lot more smart about this and he's mm. also been a lot more vocally um in favor of unions in the house of representatives he's there's been a lot of uh viral moments in which he's had bombastic pleas about the pro act mm. which although ohio has been trending red it does have a pretty long history of unions mm. and so that pro union mentality coupled with the fact that he has been spending a lot of time going on to fox news to make his case, which I think mm. it is an absolutely That's smart, a, smart yeah, idea. Good move. Like, yeah. I think that the fact that a lot of Democrats are like, no, you have to boycott Fox News. Never talk. Never talk to Fox News. I think yeah. that's just stupid. That's just don't talk to the other like the yeah. potential audience. Yeah, Only there's the a huge have. they have a huge audience of people that could potentially find some appeal in your message. If they're seeing you, they might vote for you, even if mm-hmm. they are you know, more likely to be Republican. So I can't believe that I'm saying this. But I am, I'm predicting it now. I think Ohio might actually go blue. Hmm. And before I started yeah. looking at these numbers, if you had told me that I was going to put Wisconsin as red and Ohio as blue, I would have smacked you in the face. <laughs> I did not spend very much time looking at Ohio, but I'm just going to go with the status quo and call Ohio red. Okay. <laughs> see which one of us is right. <laughs> okay. Um, and finally, I mean, Pennsylvania. We already mm-hmm. kind of talked a bit about Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, they have a very strong economic populist who has rural support on running on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. And on the Republican side, you have Dr. fucking Oz. <laughs> like, <laughs> but he's got Trump's endorsement, right? I mean, he's got Trump's endorsement, but Pennsylvania does not have Trump's endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, famously, it was the state that pushed Biden over the edge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, like uh, Michael mentioned, just looking at the polling data, um, you have, uh, you have Fetterman beating Oz pretty consistently in every single poll. Um, some of the older ones are by double digits and I just, I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that Pennsylvania goes blue. So mm. that means that the final breakdown for my map would be 52 to 48 and for Michael would be 50, 50. Yep. That seems about right. <laughs> so that is my prediction that is his prediction we will see what happens 
And now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our Ass Hat this week? Well, Michael, we have a newcomer this week. Really? I could not be more happy to welcome this week's Ass Hat. It's candidate for Georgia Senate, Hershiel Walker. Hershey wow. Walker, come on down. <laughs> I like that we just got through a segment where we were like, this person could be in Congress, and now they're an Ass Hat. <laughs> Hopefully Georgians listen and they realize Ass Hattery is does I mean, not represent you know that, them. Don't you know that everyone in Georgia is a huge fan of the show? I I did know that. I was aware. Mostly because we're a classic, you know, split ticket, support the demo support Warnock, support Kemp kind of show, you know? Yeah, exactly. So what did Herschel Walker do to get on our show? Well, um, our buddy had some things to say about the Green New Deal. Hmm. Specifically um, about how uh, how air works, because hmm. I, I, I didn't know this, but apparently he's an expert in air, specifically how good air and bad air work. Wow, an aerologist. Yeah, he's an aerologist. <laughs> <laughs> so so he was talking about the Green New Deal that the United States would spend quote millions of dollars cleaning our good air up, since we don't control the air our good air decided to float over to China's bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. Mm -hmm. And now we got to clean that back up while they're messing ours up. China's over there with a bunch of box fans (laughs) blowing their bad air. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking, so not only is, is China taking our jobs, they're Mm -hmm. taking all of our good air and sending their bad air over to us. You know why? Because this is American made air, Nathan. (laughs) Made in America. (laughs) USA. I mean, I, I mean that that explains why uh, today when I was looking outside, there Mm -hmm. was a, there were the clouds had formed the words made in China. <laughs> that that makes so much sense. The, you mean the smog from those yeah, worlds? Yeah, the smog. Form, yeah, yeah, exactly. And our and 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 over here where the air is good, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like they're made in China, and then we've got our air is in like a pair of Levi's and walking around like uh, <laughs> like a cowboy. <laughs> so the reason why he is an asshat, we actually we debated whether he would be an asshat or a Dershowitz bag. He, it's not necessarily a self defeating argument. It's just incredibly colossally stupid and the reason why i why we decided that this justifies making him an asshat is that somebody who is this colossally stupid thinking like having the audacity the sheer arrogance to think that they should hold any lever of power Mm -hmm. is worthy of being called an asshat i mean look you don't have to be an expert in air to be a senator but if you start talking about it and if you start basing your political positions on your own lack of knowledge of, I mean, I don't even, I don't even necessarily know what to call it. Just basic, it's the aerodynamics, yeah. <laughs> climate, climate policy. Like, yeah. All that stuff. like basic ass aerodynamics. This goes beyond just, you know, being an idiot that doesn't think that global warming exists. This mm. is just like, this is, this is the type of shit that Saturday night live could not come up with. Mm-hmm. Dude, I between last week and this week, our asshat segments, I'm starting to think that maybe, just maybe, Republicans don't understand the Green New Deal. Huh. Yeah. Or maybe climate change or climate policy at all. 
Yeah. To be fair, things you don't understand are scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and look, if they didn't understand how it worked, that would be one thing. But the fact that they think they do and are using their lack of knowledge to write policies is what makes them an asshat. Absolutely. So a deep and hearty congratulations to Herschel Walker for being our asshat of, of the week. week. So for our last segment tonight, we are talking about the separation of church and state, which does indeed exist. What? I know. Big deal. Yeah. Like, it's kind of amazing how explicitly it exists. It's pretty yeah. much in writing. Yeah. Like, when, when people say get it in writing so you know it's real, it's this it's, is it's, in writing. It's there. Yeah. And what's interesting is, I so I, while I was doing research on this, I decided to... Um, I, I read an op-ed in the official newspaper of Liberty University. Nice. Um, that was specifically talking about um, why most Americans have a misunderstanding of separation of church and state. Uh, basically arguing for the intrusion of religion into politics and why that's actually a good thing and why Jefferson did not actually want there to be a separation of church and state in the way people think that it hmm. exists. Yeah, that's really... That's interesting. Um, well, which we'll get to in a bit. Yeah. So let's just quickly just establish, just as a reminder, First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Yeah. Respecting an establishment of religion. No law. That's pretty fucking broad. Yeah. And yet somehow so specific. <laughs> yeah. And and the sixth article, Article 6 of the Constitution, uh requires that you know senators and representatives never require a uh religious test to qualify for office it says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the united states yeah again broad enough to cover all religion narrow enough to be really fucking clear <laughs> yeah yeah so let's so let's 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 talk about that so yeah there is a little bit of truth to the idea that separation of church and state has not always been perfectly practiced in the united states that is totally true which is a defect not a feature yeah a defect not a feature um so for a long time, there were a lot of protections within the Bill of Rights that were interpreted as only applying to the federal government and not the states. You know, which this goes back to the idea that we've talked about in the past about how um, when people tote how great states' rights is, um, but at the expense of individual rights, mm -hmm. you can stop taking them intellectually seriously. Yeah. And, and importantly, like, that was the legal tradition in the United States. It was called dual federalism. And it was yeah. the true belief that the federal government had a different set of laws, a different yeah. set of controls than the states. And the states controlled the majority of, you know, yeah. you know regulations and whatnot. Yeah. That has changed. That is yeah. no longer the way our society, our government, our laws function. To yeah. argue that it is still or should still be the case is totally anachronistic. It's to yeah. argue that we should return 
to a system of government that was designed for 13 fully independent colonies to be able to fight a war together. Yeah. And also, it's important to note that a lot of it was changed because of the 14th Amendment. Yes. Because the 14th Amendment specifically talked about equal protection under the law that cannot be denied by the states. Exactly. And in fact, the the Establishment Clause, as, as it pertains to judicial review, was not officially interpreted until the 1947 Emerson versus Board of Educator versus Board of Education case, mm -hmm. which specifically interpreted that the due process clause by the 14th Amendment, you know, remember, specifically the government cannot deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process, that yep. freedom of religion, the establishment clause, is one of those liberties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which means that the 14th Amendment, and by extension the First Amendment, work in tandem together to guarantee you the, yeah. the idea that states cannot have an establishment of religion. Yeah. I also want to call it one other thing, which is like, you know, Republicans argue all the time that jurisprudence is not real law and that's fake. So if you believe that, you don't have to believe in, in the importance of jurisprudence, right, in order to know that the amendments to the Constitution also apply to all the states. Because... Every amendment has been independently incorporated to the states, yeah. right? So every state had to, you know, approve the amendments as they were added to the Constitution. But also every state incorporated them to the states themselves, saying yeah. that these amendments directly apply to us. So it's not as if, like, we have overwritten the Founding Fathers' principles in applying the amendments to the states. They did it to themselves. Yeah. Well, All of these amendments apply. And on top of that, this is what they intended. Yes. They did intend for there to be a wall of separation between church and state. Now, let's yes. let's address the Republican argument that I've been seeing over and over again that are trying to basically um, disregard that separation of church and state. Yeah. So what, you, what I've been hearing, I, I heard this from Laura Boebert. I heard this from Marjorie Taylor Greene. I heard this from Charlie Kirk, is that... There is no separation of church and state in the Constitution, and the idea of separation of church and state is based on one letter that Thomas Jefferson sent to this group of Baptists one time that talked about a wall of separation. Have they never read? I don't understand how they don't interpret the First Amendment as separating church and state. I think that's yeah. like my big hang up here, but let's... Let's steel man that argument. Let's steel man that argument. So so let's go ahead and read what it was that Jefferson did actually send to the 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 Danbury Baptists when they were when they were uh, sending letters back and forth regarding the establishment clause of the First Amendment. So he said, quote, "I contemplate with sovereign rever reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free practice of thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Yeah. So the, the, the Liberty university op-ed that I found that kind of is a, you know, trying to, uh, um, debunk the idea of separation of church and state specifically brings that up. And the argument that this person makes against that is basically that um, they say, quote, the, the metaphor 
of a wall of separation was not intended to say that religion should not influence opinion on government issues. Rather, it was used to affirm free religious practice for citizens. Yeah. So that's the argument that they're making. The problem is what this person just said is the equivalent of saying, I'm not a vegetarian. I just don't eat meat. Because the only way that you can fully protect the free practice of religion is if your specific religious beliefs do not influence the law. Yeah. All right. So that doesn't mean that there can't be religious people in government. Yes. That cannot mean that people who have private religious beliefs cannot be within government. In fact, to an extent, you could even argue that some of the moral values that they have might be influenced partially by their religion. Sure. But morals that come solely from a religious place and thus impact the religious practices of others through law and policy yeah. is completely antithetical yeah. to the idea of religious freedom. So if yeah. you value religious freedom, you have to, have to, have to believe in a separation of church and state. There's yeah. no other way about it. Yeah. All right. So one of the one of one of the important things that I want to point to in this is specific justifications that Thomas Jefferson had for the Virginia statute for religious freedom. So one of the issues that Thomas Jefferson had seen early um, in Virginia was the fact that prior to the revolution, Virginia had an official church. So this is according to the Monticello website. Virginia had a specific church. All right. And what what Thomas Jefferson had noticed is that the Church of England, being the official church of the state, ended up creating persecution of dissenters, which at the time was primarily Presbyterians and Baptists. They were discriminated against. They were persecuted. And all of these early battles that had happened prior to the revolution were things that Thomas Jefferson noticed and were a huge part of why he specifically wanted yeah. to make sure that the Virginia statute for religious freedom drew that wall of separation between church and state. Because when you have people whose laws are based on religion, impose those laws on people that do not have that same religion, you are violating religious freedom. Let me put it this way. I come from a Unitarian Universalist church. Same-sex weddings are considered legitimate by the Unitarian Universalist church. Maybe by some denomination of like, maybe by the Southern Baptist church. I don't know the specifics uh, denominations, but say there's a, say there's a denomination of the, the Southern Baptist church that say that according to their religion, you cannot have same-sex marriage. All right. Which means that within their church, they refuse to practice that. But when they pass a law that says that that there's there's no legitimate marriage between same-sex couples, what they're saying is that the religious practice that I do, that my church does as a Unitarian Universalist church, that that is illegal. That that yeah. does not that is not a legal ceremony. But when they do it, it is, which means that my religious freedom is being violated. So you have to you have to have that separation in order to have religious freedom. And yep. the argument that the wall of separation is basically 
is basically saying that government can influence the churches, but churches can influence the government is just a ludicrous idea because you, I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible for churches to influence the government without the government then influencing the churches mm -hmm. because people have different denominations. People have different religious beliefs. Yeah. That's only possible if there's only one church. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is like the, the, um, the purpose of the separation of church and state is not to get rid of religion. Yeah. That's the thing. Like there's a reason why they called out no religious tests. Yeah. It's not, they didn't call out religious. If you are a Christian, you're not allowed or re only religious tests on Christians or anything like that. It was no religious test because pluralism was the goal, you know? So it's like, it's not that you, it, you know, it's, it's the justification for making laws, rationale, argumentation matter. The yeah. thing, the, the very fact that Nathan laid out is like a law saying that when some people get married, it's not a marriage. And when other people get married, it is, is a bad law. There's no good justification for it unless you have a religious persuasion, unless you are like, have a religious point of view. And that's why it's so valuable to like separate religion from politics. Like, it's unclear exactly like where a good line would be except for the fact that like to the degree that there are multiple religions practicing like you respect the religious practices that don't harm other people. It's yeah. like it's very straightforward. And to the historical argument as well, I want to add another piece to that because like the letter sent by Thomas Jefferson, he also ran it by his attorney general to be like, yeah, this is the law, right? Yep. It's the law. Um, but also, like, during Washington's administration, like, the first one, <laughs> there was a treaty negotiated with Muslim rulers in North Africa that explicitly stated that Christianity, Christianity was not a founding part of the U.S. It's called the, the, the Treaty of Tripoli. It was unanimously approved by the Senate in 1797 uh, under and approved under the, the Adams administration. And Article 11 of the treaty says, quote, the government of the United States is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. Like, it should be pretty clear that that's true. And, yeah. like, notice, Jesus, Christianity, not mentioned in the Constitution. Yeah. Despite both being around for a while by that point, if they had wanted to include them, they had ample opportunity. <laughs> like... And and the thing is like so a counter argument to that, which we which I hear all the fucking time, is like, but what about the Pledge of Allegiance? And what about in God we trust on our money? And what about you liberal snowflake? What about the fact that the Declaration of the Independence, uh, Declaration of Independence mentions a creator? And the thing is, that's an argument against uh, the establishment of a religion. Right. Like the point in the Declaration of Independence, it mentions our creator, which is a pluralistic idea. Generally speaking, whatever the creator is, he could have mentioned Jesus, yeah. could have mentioned like a specific God or Christianity or any of those things and didn't. Because, yes, you could just be talking about your mother. At yeah. That point. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like all, all people are created. Yeah. You could argue like your creator is your mother and your father. 
Yeah. Like that you could easily make that argument. Yeah. And that's the thing. A lot of a lot of the justification for the humanistic belief that humans have rights and value was about like our descent or our place in like nature. That is the that is the political phil- philosophical tradition that we're talking about in this founding period. So like creator can be literally anything. That is a pluralistic idea and meant to be so intentionally. There were many drafts of the Declaration of Independence. There is not an errant word in it. Yeah. Also, about the Pledge of Allegiance thing. <laughs> like I already know this one. <laughs> it was established in 1942. Hardly a founding principle. Yeah. But but more importantly, in my opinion, like people can say like, yeah, but maybe they just got around to it, you know, more than 150 years later. More importantly, so it was originally part of this like youth program to celebrate Columbus Day in 1892. That is a long tradition. But despite the original writing, like the original version of the of the Pledge of Allegiance being written by a Baptist minister, it contained no reference to God. It didn't mention him at all. Indeed, even the 1942 official Pledge of Allegiance didn't mention God. Under God wasn't added until 1954 after significant lobbying by the Knights of Columbus, which is a Catholic special interest group, and a push from the president, Dwight Eisenhower. 1955, Dwight Eisenhower again pushed for adding in God we trust officially to our money. And largely this was as a response to communism, as like Christianity is a backlash to communism. This is like very recent history in our nation. And... It was, to Nathan's point, it was during a period of particularly weak separation of church and state. Again, a defect, a yeah. bug, not a feature. Yeah, which, again, is not what the writers intended. So the, yeah. the, the Constitution was mainly drafted by James Madison, heavily influenced by Thomas Jefferson. We'll get to James Madison in just a second, but I do just have a few more things that I want to say with Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. So... Sometimes it's pointed to the fact that uh, when Thomas Jefferson was a governor, apparently at one point he had offered some type of um, religious prayer to accept the Continental. uh, Like basically when he was a governor, he accepted the Continental Congress's request for each governor to issue a day of prayer after the Boston Tea Party. Right. So that was Mm -hmm. that was in, in 1774. But as he got older, again, this was before the Constitution was written. As he got older, there was a point where he was encouraged when he was president, all right, when he was encouraged to do another um, proclamation of prayer during a different national crisis. He Hmm. was pressured and he was heavily criticized because he refused to do it. And his justification for it was, quote, the provision that no law shall be made respecting the establishment or free exercise of religion but only propose that I should recommend not prescribe a day of fasting and prayer. It is meant that this recommendation is to carry some authority mm. and be sanctioned by some penalty by those on those who disregard it. Not indeed of fine and imprisonment by some degree of prescription, perhaps in public opinion. I do not believe it is for the interest of religion to invite civil magistrates to direct its exercises, its discipline, or its doctrine. Basically, he is not only saying that 
there should something like that should carry no penalty like that that a, a public official should he, they're, they're not just saying that um a public official should not lead that and enforce some type of um legal penalty for not participating he is saying that the social penalty involved in not participating in some type of in some type of prayer that somebody in their official capacity as a as a government official hmm. lead that that social pressure is too much and therefore violates the establishment clause which is interesting that because that kind of mm, flies in the face really of the argument that i made a few weeks ago mm. <laughs> um, but but that's that's what he's saying he's saying just the social pressure is inappropriate um for you know for a public figure another mm. important quotation and this is one of my favorites all right um so he said this it was uh, uh, in this document that he wrote about the notes of of uh state of virginia um, basically, uh, this was written in, I believe, uh, uh, 1787. He said, quote, But our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them. The rights of the conscience we never submit. We could not submit. We are answerable for them to our God. The legitimate powers of governance extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say, there are 20 gods or no God. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Reason and free inquiry are the only effective agents against error. Yeah. It's like, what an, what an amazing way to put it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I got a million problems with Thomas Jefferson, but he is 100% mm -hmm. right about yeah. this. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to James Madison, who is the person who drafted the fucking Constitution. So just to put all bullshit that people <laughs> have to rest, anybody who says that the Constitution was not intended to have a separation of church and state, anybody who says that is wrong. They're yeah. just objectively just straight wrong. Straight up wrong. So uh, 1803, um, in a letter uh, objecting to the use of of government land for churches, James Madison wrote, quote, the purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. Mm. You remember that time period where England changed religions every time they had a different ruler and the new ruler basically just killed a bunch of people that didn't follow that religion mm -hmm. that's why they wanted to separate church from state so that shit doesn't happen yeah all right another one another one this was a document that he wrote it was the detached memoranda specifically talking about the first amendment on freedom of religion he wrote this in 1817 he said quote um Strongly guarded is the separation between religion and government in the Constitution of the United States. The danger of encroachment by ecclesiastical bodies may be illustrated by precedents already furnished in their short history. I mean, <laughs> he's talking about the encroachment of religious bodies into government. Yeah. 
and yeah. how that's the point of the 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 establishment clause because this yeah. again this is the guy who fucking wrote the constitution yeah the colonies right? drafted like, the constitution the colonies had to your point official religions and by the time they got to the constitution they were like fuck that that sucks we don't want that in our government <laughs> it's like the yeah and and that's the thing like that's one of the amazing powers of creating the first secular constitution and creating the first like democratic republic is that they established a government by consensus yeah. which means that respect for plurality was required in order to establish the government in the first place yeah it like there couldn't be a principle more aligned with how this nation was established than the separation of church and state yeah and here's the other thing be careful what you wish for yeah. if you want if you want religion to be involved in government the reason why they were so adamant about keeping that wall of separation is because if the state established an official religion an official denomination religion that means that your way of doing it has to be that way of doing it. So think of it yeah. this way. Um, for Catholics, all right, priests can't get married. All right? So if a state religion was Catholicism, then that means that all of your religious, all, all of your priests or all of your ministers would not be able to get married. Yeah. All right? You would have to do communion in the way in which whatever religion, hap whatever, whatever religious denomination happens to be in charge, you have to do it their way. Yeah. All right. The again, I cannot stress this enough. You cannot have freedom of religion without a separation of church and state. Yeah. The only reason why some people have gotten to the point where they're brazenly and idiotically saying that separation of church and state is is bullshit is yeah. wrong the only reason why you have them saying that is because in their minds number one christianity is the neutral state of being but number mm -hmm. two in their minds they honestly think that the religion in charge is going to be theirs yeah in every I, yeah in every sense of the word. They just believe they're going to have power. I think... And I think, that's not always going to be the case. Yeah. I think an amazing... I found this quote from the Religious Action Center for Reformed Judaism, which I thought was interesting coming from... I, I really like it when religious organizations talk about the separation of church and state. Because that, the thing is, like, like, Christian nationalist evangelical narrative is like really powerful in the United States, but it doesn't represent all religious people because it can't, right? <laughs> and so, so they write, quote, neither biblical texts nor Talmudic rulings completely explain the Jewish community's strong commitment to the separation of church and state. Rather, the Jewish historical experience as strangers in a strange land often suffering from persecution as a religious minority informs our support for separation of religion and state in the United States. The First Amendment made the United States the refuge of choice for Jews and others throughout the world when faced with persecution and impression, oppression in countries without equivalent guarantees. That's it. 
Like the only, to Nathan's point, the only reason why you would ever advocate for the breakdown of the separation between church and state is if you thought you were going to rule, if you thought your religion would be the powerful one. If you take a moment to recognize that you might be in the minority, you would never break down that separation. And now it's time to end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that I read a good book. Mm, what'd you read? I, uh, so um, you actually, you actually, uh, do you remember uh, Cassie Medcalf mm-hmm. um, from, um, from, from theater? Um, so she's, she's an old friend of mine and she is an author. Wow. Um, she, she also does like, uh, she also does the voice for several audiobooks. So she actually voiced her own book, but she's also an author and she has two at this point, she has two self-published books, um, that have actually done pretty well. And I, I, uh, I listened to one of the, one of her books this awesome. week. It's Man, called, I bet she would be a great narrator. Yeah, no, she is a great narrator. Uh, it's called betting on the house. Hmm. You can find it on uh, Amazon, um, audible, and it's it's a good book, you know. Hmm. So I, I completely recommend it. It's it's betting on the house by Cassandra, um, by Cassandra Medcalf, um, and yeah, it's just it was just a good book. I liked it. Gave me feels. Awesome. Yeah, that it's a, great. Yeah, it's a um, it's a beautiful little romance story about uh, two women in um, in the rural Appalachia. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah. what was your highlight, Mike? So my highlight is kind of perspective. Um, my friend is getting a group of his friends together for a birthday for his birthday in Charlottesville this weekend. I always love like going back to Charlottesville. I went to school there, but the, one of the really exciting things apart from being just going to be, you know, a great time is that Bree and I are planning to take our motorcycles down there. So it'll be our first like m- overnight motorcycle trip. So really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah. And so we'll take a moment to thank our incredible patrons for supporting the show. So thank you to Jared DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Johnson for supporting our show. And thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>